Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. I am so incredibly excited to be announcing the launch of our YouTube channel. It's called the Pelvic Health Collaborative. There will be weekly videos uploaded to the channel. Some will be live podcast interviews. Others will be informational videos on pelvic health. So please subscribe. You will be notified every week when a new video has been uploaded. The reason I am announcing this today is because in addition to being able to listen to this podcast here, you can also watch the entire podcast episode live on YouTube. It is the first ever podcast episode to be filmed in its entirety and it is now live for you guys on YouTube. So I hope that you enjoy this content. Please subscribe to the channel, give it a thumbs up, leave a comment, let me know your feedback, and I hope you enjoy it. today with Dr. Seth Berger. He is a New York City-based psychiatrist. And well, first, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is exciting because this is the first ever recording of the Pelvic Health, Women's Pelvic Health Podcast. Um, So I'll let you introduce yourself, but just to quickly give a little background as to why you're here, you obviously treat a lot of patients who have pelvic pain, um, which is, I think, pretty cool. And most other psychiatrists, I think, don't focus as much on pelvic pain as you do. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Yeah, well, again, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, thank you for being be here. part of the first actual ever recording of this. <laughs> um, so yeah, I trained at Columbia and did all my psychiatry training there. And then after I finished my residency and fellowship, I started a private practice on the Upper West Side. And in the first maybe six or 12 months, I saw pretty much everything, anxiety, depression, ADHD, really enjoyed what I was doing. And then maybe four, three or four years ago, there was a week where I had two women that came to see me for anxiety. And both of them happened to have comorbid pelvic floor pain. I didn't know all that much about pelvic floor pain. And I was treating their anxiety just like I would treat anybody else's anxiety. And over the course of three to four months, their anxiety got significantly better and their pain got significantly better. Right. And it was incredible. Um, I wasn't sure if it happens all the time, if this is what you should be doing with pain, looking for underlying anxiety, what the relationship was. And I reached out to their doctors and talked to one pelvic floor doctor, learned more about pelvic floor pain. And the pelvic floor doctor saw the same relationship between anxiety and pelvic floor pain and started having a relationship with her and seeing more of her patients and then seeing patients from physical therapists and acupuncturists. And it became a specialty of mine. 
and I've really, really enjoyed it. It's really rewarding work. And that pattern's continued, where the more I've been treating people with pelvic floor pain that have underlying anxiety, the pain gets so much better. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice pattern to see. It's you know something that now more and more doctors are aware of. Definitely the pelvic floor teams are aware of. And it's a great team approach because you're not working with just one person. You're working as a team with whomever it is that they're seeing, whether it's an OBGYN, physiatrist, physical therapist. So it's just a fun, rewarding system and approach to take on, on people. And they do much better. Do you think that it makes a difference? Say you have chronic pain, pelvic pain in specific. Do you think it makes a difference to see a psychiatrist who has experience working with people who have pelvic pain specifically? Like, do you think that that makes the outcome of the treatment more effective? Yeah, I think that any good knowledge, knowledgeable psychopharmacologist and psychiatrist should be able to have a good grasp on right. how to treat people with pelvic floor pain or chronic pain. Um, I think it's important to better understand the mechanisms of actions of both medication and the behavioral techniques because there are some nuances that could be really helpful for people with pelvic floor pain as well as chronic pain. Um, so as long as somebody is able to really think of the person as a whole and not just be narrowly focused on the one cardinal symptom that they're coming in with. Um, I think that anybody could do it, but the more you do it, the more you see people, the right. better equipped you are to handle everything and to bring out the full total skill set of not just looking at the medication, but also looking at the behavioral techniques. Right. So now can you tell us how you treat patients who have pelvic pain? Yeah, I wish there was, you know, one simple <laughs> one algorithm, yeah. um, but it's really not a, a one model fits everybody type of situation. It's really individualized. So I like to look at the big picture and to better assess and see, you know, what type of treatment every person needs. Um, one based on their anxiety symptoms, their depressive symptoms, their pelvic floor symptoms, to better understand how the symptoms really impair their functioning what the goals of their treatment are, what the strengths and resources they have, um, supports they have in place, what part of the journey they're in, and really what's important is what type of therapy have they had in the past and what did they like or not like about it. And when you look at all of that, you know, there's different therapy models. Mm -hmm. The first one that's really evidence-based and great for pain and anxiety and mood is a cognitive behavioral therapy, looking at the relationships between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Um, but not everybody likes that type of structured therapy type of modality. So there's just supportive therapy or talk therapy where it can be helpful for different types of people. I think it's just really important to keep goals in mind and to always have types of goals that you are working on, revisiting, rethinking the goals so that it's not just an open-ended talk about whatever is on one's mind. It's really trying to look at how can you reach some of these goals and how could you change the therapy techniques and behaviorally to, to try to accomplish what you're, what you're going for. And then anybody who comes in, I also do a good thorough medication evaluation and not everybody benefits from medication or needs medication, but I think it's important to look at the underlying depression and anxiety and have an informed conversation of how medications can potentially benefit somebody. But it's not that medication or magic pill is going to solve anybody's problems right. it's really a combination approach of being thoughtful and personalizing the treatment with a combination potentially of both medication and therapy right and can you first explain how cognitive behavioral therapy works sure so cognitive behavioral therapy it's how thoughts feelings and behaviors are all related and interact with one another 
Um, it's a here and now approach. Mm-hmm. So there's some therapy approaches where you look at one's childhood and the past and cognitive behavior is really here and now focused. And oftentimes when there's something that's going on that makes one depressed or down or have a negative perspective, then you see everything from the negative lens, which leads you to avoid and not do anything and get into the spiral of being depressed and being negative and not taking action in the way that you'd want to. And it leads to all or nothing thinking, catastrophizing, thinking the worst is going to happen and being irrational with some of the thought processes that that people have when they're stuck in that cycle. So the ideas behind CBT is to really take a step back Mm -hmm. and to break that negative loop and to try to see, well, what are these thoughts that are taking place? And if it's somebody who has pelvic floor pain, well, you know, what is going on in that day? You know, do you have a thought that my pelvic floor pain is and the flare is coming back? And do that, those thoughts lead to a feeling of depression? And does that depression lead to these automatic thoughts that this is going to be the worst thing I've ever had and I'm never going to be able to live or function again? And then does that lead to patterns of avoidance? And you don't always want to have a totally positive perspective on things because that's not also based on reality. Right. So it's about better understanding the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and coming up with a balanced thought where, yes, my thought is pelvic floor pain is, is here and it's back, but it's time limited. I have my family. I have friends. I know it always passes. I've got a, a good team, a good doctor. I've talked about it and I will be able to do the things I want to do. I'm just going to need to rest for today. So it's coming up with those balanced thoughts and reframing and restructuring things or better understanding the behavioral patterns so that you can put behavioral plans and behavioral activation in place to make sure that you're able to do the things that are in your best interest. Right. So the reframing technique that we talked about prior to doing this, but does that fall under the category of CBT? Definitely. Uh So it's all about if you are thinking something and feeling one way and acting on it, if you could find a way of reframing it into a more positive, balanced perspective, it's using the cognitive techniques that are all part of CBT. So it's mm-hmm. one of many CBT techniques. Right. And I, so like I've always heard people say, you know, shift your mindset and look at this in a different light. But when you don't feel well or have anything going on in your life that's negative, that's essentially impossible to do. Mm-hmm. But then for the first time, when I read the article that you wrote, um, you talked about how to reframe your thoughts and you really like explained it very well. And it was the first time that I was actually able to shift my perspective because, and I might botch this explanation, but you said it was a day when I particularly happened to not have been feeling well, but I had an extremely productive day. So I was sitting there thinking, I don't feel well, I have this pain, I'm upset, I'm in a bad mood. But I was reading this article that you wrote and I realized I've done X, Y, and Z. I saw my friend today. I had two meetings. I worked out. I did all of these things. And I should look at that and tell myself how productive I've been today and the pain will go away and I'll have more productive days like this one when I'm also feeling better. Mm That's exactly what CBT is without realizing. It like clicked though for the first mm-hmm. time. No, it's amazing. It needs that you... to be like worked through and explained. Mm-hmm. You got it. I mean, it's amazing that you were able to do it. Oftentimes it's easier to go through that with somebody, but there's also lots of self-help workbooks and things that you can learn that on your own. It's really hard to do in the moment and it's the hardest at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The more and more that you work on it, the more and more that you understand it, the easier it is to become second nature. 
And the idea is not every time you have one of these thoughts is to go to a piece of paper and write down, you know, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and balancing thoughts. And, right. you know, how much you believe in these thoughts, how much you don't, because that's part of it as well. It's more that that's the first step in a bigger picture plan of changing the way that you think in a more optimistic, positive way to make sure that the anxiety, the mood, the pain, it doesn't interfere with your functioning as much as it has been and as much as it could be if you are looking at everything from a negative lens. Does it take patients a while to learn how to use the reframing technique? Mm -hmm. Definitely. It yeah. is a process. Um, it definitely doesn't happen in you know one or two weeks because for so many years, most people are wired in a way to feel a certain they, way. Exactly. Every time that and they think a certain way. Yeah, yeah. Every time that they have chest pain, they automatically think that they're having a heart attack and going to die. Right. And just because you have chest pain doesn't mean you need to think that you're going to have a heart attack and die. Chest pain could just be that you have acid reflux or just that you're feeling uncomfortable. Same thing with pelvic floor pain, same thing with anxiety. It takes a long time to try to change the wiring so that you're able to see things from a different perspective. And again, it's not easy. It takes a lot of practice, but it definitely happens over time. Can you answer this question? What would be like the number one tip that you have if people want to start understanding how they can reframe their negative thoughts? Yeah, well, I think the number one tip would just first be hopeful uh -huh. that it works, that right. this is one of the most studied and proven techniques, that it seems so you know, regressive that, you know, like you're in school having to do homework, having to work on these thoughts, having to try to better understand it, but it definitely works. I think that the most important tip is to stick with it. Mm -hmm. That even in four weeks, if you're not seeing any progress, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep using it. And over time, it will almost always get better and easier. But it, for everybody, it takes a different amount of time. You just have to keep practicing and keep going at it. Mm -hmm. And then the other component that you just said that you largely use for treating your patients is medication. Mm -hmm. SSRIs in specific. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So SSRIs are one type of medication. They're the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So what that means is it doesn't put any serotonin in your body. It mm -hmm. just increases the amount of serotonin that's available because it stops the serotonin from being broken down. That's your typical antidepressant when people talk about antidepressants like Prozac and Zoloft and Lexapro and Celexa and Vaxel, all the SSRI class. But that's not the only antidepressant. There's SNRIs that people talk a lot for pain, um, like Cymbalta and Pristique and Effexor. And then there's tricyclics, which are much older medications from 50, 60 years ago that are also really effective for pain. So there's not one type of medication or one specific medication that I use most often. It's just, again, individualized based on how people are doing and what symptoms they come in with. Um, so in general, antidepressants can be really helpful for multiple reasons. I mean, one, biologically, without going into too much of the receptors and how it works, but when people have lower serotonin and norepinephrine levels, they typically have a the pathway, the central nervous system pathway is just overly excitable. And uh, since the pathways that inhibit pain, the dampen pain, don't work as well. So by increasing the serotonin and norepinephrine, it helps inhibit the pain. But then there's also a perceived pain pathway which is more of an indirect effect that the medications work by as well. Different areas in the brain that help make sure that when you do have pain, it's not amplified as much. So by itself, SSRIs and SNRIs and, and tricyclics, they help with pain. Um, 
They also really help with anxiety and they help with depression. They're first line treatments for that. And there's a huge correlation between people with chronic pain, people with pelvic floor pain and anxiety and depression. So one of the main things that the SSRI like medications do is that they treat underlying depression and anxiety. Right. And that is going to help pain. There's the, again, more biological mechanisms, but taking a step away from that, one of the cardinal symptoms of anxiety, for example, is that you know, some people hold their pain in their body in different places. People talk about headaches. People talk about neck pain or back pain or jaw pain. People also hold their pain in their pelvic area, in their um, abdomen. So by treating underlying anxiety, it prevents you from tensing so much, which makes the pain worse. Also helps in terms of being able to do more. When you're less depressed, when you're less anxious, you can go out and do the things that you want to do. You don't avoid as much. Right. You stop that whole loop that we were talking about because you're able to get out and do the things that you want to be doing. Sleep. I mean, most people with pain have sleeping problems. Most people with anxiety and depression have sleeping problems. Those medications are really good at getting at the underlying anxiety and depression and pain and helping sleep. Sleep is so important for one to feel better about themselves in all three domains. So it really can help one sleep and it affects one's confidence and one's self-identity. Um, so by using the medications to get at all those different mechanisms, it really makes a huge help in pain, anxiety, and depression. Mm -hmm. And someone like me, for example, who I've never been someone who suffered from anxiety or depression until I developed pain. Mm -hmm. And then I started to have all of these different types of pelvic pain related issues. And the first doctor that actually diagnosed me with pelvic floor dysfunction, she put me on all different medications. And I'm not someone who likes medications. I didn't want to be put on any medication. But when you really don't feel well, you'll do whatever you have to do to feel better. Mm -hmm. So I went on these medications and I think I think they really helped. I was also going to pelvic floor physical therapy and I was doing a few different things at once. So it's obviously hard to tell what what's doing what. But I do think that they really did help and it was interesting for me how I developed I wouldn't say like I was severely depressed, but I developed mm -hmm. feelings of depression and lots of anxiety when I wasn't feeling well. Mm -hmm. So that was always interesting for me how it can develop, even if you're not someone who has previously had any experience with depression or anxiety. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really normal response to right. have. I mean, you know, as a psychopharmacologist and someone who sees a lot of people with anxiety, even without anything else, that one of the most triggering situations that bring on anxiety is uncertainty right with pain with pelvic floor pain there's so much uncertainty you don't know when the pain flare is going to happen you don't know when you're going to be able to meet up with friends you don't know when you're going to be able to have you know a relationship with the person that you're romantically involved with there's so much uncertainty there and that uncertainty affects your self-confidence and your identity and it creates a, a cycle where you end up withdrawing and being more depressed and more anxious. So there's no question that there's mm -hmm. a lot of anxiety with any type of pain. Um, and it's a really challenging situation. You know, some of the things that are really helpful is to make sure that the people who are important to you in your life, whether it's a significant other or family or friends, that they know a little bit about this, um, that they have an idea of what's going on so that you don't feel so much shame and guilt by backing out or by not spending time with them. It's also really important to talk to them ahead of time to let them know well, this sometimes happens. I get these pain, pain flares and this is what's really helpful and this is what's really not helpful. Mm -hmm. So this way, when you're in a, a crisis and having a pain flare, 
the people that care about you are more knowledgeable and they can do the things that are helpful and they can say, hey, Hannah, you told me when you have one of these, I said, you know, you told me to, to come over or to go coffee with you or to tell you to get out of the house. And you can't be as resentful and upset if that's something that you told them ahead of time. So there's no question that there, there's a correlation with chronic pain and anxiety. So it's just really important to better understand that and to get the appropriate treatment when that interferes with your functioning. Mm -hmm. And I think what's also so important that relates closely to that is even though it's important for your friends, family members, husband, boyfriend, whatever it is to know about what you're going through and to be very in tune with that, I think mm -hmm. there's also a component of your, yourself being in tune with that and knowing like when to say yes, when to say no, when to tell someone this is what I need, this is what I want, like, mm -hmm. and not being afraid that people will be mad at you or that you're going to let someone down mm -hmm. or that you've changed a plan and, you know, that's part of what you have to kind of get comfortable doing when you're going through any sort of chronic illness. Yeah, I mean, it's about a balance. So. Right. You never want to be in an all or nothing type of situation where you feel like you have to do all your plans and see everybody and go exercise every day or when you kind of withdraw and do absolutely nothing. So it's about knowing yourself, mm -hmm. knowing your limitations. Um, one thing I always recommend to people is finding out what are your limitations, you know, right after surgery or when you're in pain, what can you be doing and what should you not be doing? And oftentimes, people have an idea that they should be doing absolutely nothing or that they should be doing everything based on the lens that they're looking through. So if they go to their pelvic floor doctor and they're in a place of depression or being upset, they're going to hear that they're not supposed to do anything. Right. Or if they're in a mode where they you know, really want to do absolutely everything, they're going to hear that they should be doing you know, exercising seven days a week. So I think it's really important to know yourself and to better understand you know, what are you really supposed to be doing? Can you talk to your pelvic floor doctors or your physical therapist? Get it in writing, you know, what are your actual limitations? Mm -hmm. What should you be doing so that when you get home and you're in a good or bad place, you have something concrete to look at so that you could find that balance. And right. trying to do something to help yourself every day, even if it's doing some home physical therapy or going for a walk for five minutes, but not really blaming yourself and being so upset with yourself if you need a day or two to rest and to not do much. Mm -hmm. So it's always a balance. Can you talk about how when you treat underlying anxiety and depression you see pain levels decrease like what is happening physiologically in the body that enables the pain to decrease yeah so i mean i don't want to talk too much about all the receptors because <laughs> it's, it's kind of going back everybody. to the last question yeah again. but I, I think that i mean there's definitely real pain pathways that relate to anxiety so that's one of the main components is that it really does have a biological component to it of when the anxiety is treated that the cortisol level is lower and the stress response system is better and the norepinephrine and, and serotonin is higher so that mm -hmm. it really does help with both anxiety and pain. Um, but it's also the mindset right. that, that when anxiety and mood is treated, you oftentimes might still be in pain, but you have a different mindset about it, that you have an approach of being better able to to do things that you might not have been able to do, to hear things from friends, to socialize with friends, to be around people. Um, I mean, there's a, a study with mice and it talks about mice with endometriosis and an environmental enrichment study. And one of the main outcomes was that the mice with endometriosis did better when they were more socially involved, when there was some novelty items and when their enclosed spaces were, were larger. So 
Similarly, when you're anxious and depressed, you're going to withdraw and not do anything. When you treat that and you're able to go for a walk and get outside. In New York, everyone has small apartments and not much light, so get outside to do things. Be around people, the social interactions, trying to have support groups, have people involved, you know, trying to stimulate your brain and to do things and to try to do some work. Those are really, really helpful, and it's better, easier to manage those things when the anxiety and the depression are treated. Why does like isolating yourself make pain worse? Because I know that you talk a lot about this and the importance of obviously finding balance, but having to make a conscious effort to not isolate yourself consistently when you don't feel well. Why is it so important to, as you said, take a five-minute walk or do something every day that gets you up, up, up out of the house, out of bed, and you know you interact with other people and you at least have a period of your day where you're doing something. Yeah, I know. That's a great question. I think it's so important because isolation ends up having one ruminate more mm -hmm. and thinking more in a negative way about the pain, about the problems, about the future, about all the difficulties that they're having. And then you feel isolated and you feel lonely and you feel hopeless. And then going back to the CBT model, when you have the thoughts of feeling isolated and lonely and then you start feeling depressed and anxious, the behaviors are more withdrawal right. and not doing things. And then you get into that cycle where you end up not being able to do your physical therapy exercises, not being able to be social, not being able to stimulate your mind, not being able to, to get outside, to go on those walks and to do all the things that are healthy for you. So it's about trying to come up with some structure where every day, no matter what, you do something. And even you know getting out of bed, it's really hard when you're feeling so Right, down. what if you have patients who are just can't get out of bed in the morning. Like, yeah. how do you work with it's that? It's really, really hard. And it's easy to sit on the other side and say, like, these are my recommendations, but it's really hard to put them into action. So rather than trying to set the goals at a level that's too high, and then when people aren't able to do that, then they feel even worse about themselves, trying to have some kind of small, manageable things that people can do every day, such as getting out of bed by whatever time is agreed upon and making your bed. Mm -hmm. Because then you have a mini success. You did something that feels good you made your bed at the end of the day you come back to a clean bed or a clean room and getting out of the bedroom so i like that word mini success yeah and because you have so many mini successes yeah. throughout your day and most people don't think of brushing your teeth or getting out of your bed or making your bed or you know eating breakfast i mean that's something that starts the day in the right way and staying in bed is a really difficult component to all this because sleep hygiene is so important if you stay in bed for too long your body doesn't really know when you should be sleeping and when you should be awake. So really, I mean, making sure that you're up out of bed, not laying in bed, not ruminating is important, not only for one's anxiety and pain, but also for sleep. And if you have complicated sleep, in addition to the pain, that's going to make things worse. Mm -hmm. So trying to do something, getting up, going for a five minute walk, doing a few minutes of breathing, doing a few minutes of exercise, doing something that seems manageable, and then also being accountable for that. So checking in with a friend, talking to somebody, having a scheduled phone call, packing your bag the night before so that if you want to go to a coffee shop, you don't have to worry about, well, what do I need to bring? What kind of work? What kind of clothes? Preparing the night before so that it makes everything easier for you to do in the morning, but starting small and making sure that you're able to do something in a day to feel good about. I think that's really helpful advice. And you, when you see patients who have pelvic pain, they have all different diagnoses. So 
endometriosis, vulvodynia, interstitial cystitis, vaginismus. I mean, the list goes on and on. But mm-hmm. the treatments that you employ with them, mm-hmm. do they kind of work in a similar way regardless of the diagnosis? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the etiology mm-hmm. of the pain is different. The physical therapy is going to be different. But in terms of the behavioral techniques, they're very simplar because the pain is just as debilitating from all the different uh, pelvic floor pain problems. And then also it's just about the underlying anxiety is so high because of the uncertainty in all of those different pain syndromes that treating the underlying anxiety is really important. And depression, which comes you know hand in hand with anxiety, is really important to get somebody feeling better about themselves and be able to do the things that are in their best interest. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is that people with chronic pain see a psychiatrist? Also like a psychiatrist versus a psychologist. That's again, a great question. So I think that it's all about what stage a person is in and how much the symptoms are affecting their functioning. That if somebody feels like they are really having a hard time getting out of bed, going to work, that their anxiety is high, their depression is high, the pain is high, then I definitely think it's important to see a psychiatrist. If somebody feels like they need more support, more structure, more behavioral techniques, that they're functioning at a pretty high level, that they're able to socialize, that they're able to go to work, that they're able to do everything that they need to do, but they just need some more structure and support, then I think it's really helpful to see a therapist, a psychologist, Mm -hmm. or anybody who they feel like is going to help create that structure and create that framework for them. So it depends on the severity of the symptoms, and it also depends on the where the person is in their concept of treatment that some people are you know very against medications and a psychiatrist can also help put things in perspective and give different ideas and to set different um, milestones of well if you try this 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 and this and nothing's working and you're still feeling this way maybe you should consider x or y medication but if not don't even bother with the medication approach. Try to do all the behavioral techniques. So I think a psychiatrist can put some things in perspective, mm-hmm. um, but it also depends so much so on where the person is in their symptom level and also in their functional impairment, which is really important. The problem that I had run into a few years ago, I was seeing a psychologist, like a therapist, and it was after I had broke up with my boyfriend at the time and it had been like very crazy emotional relationship and breakup and I also simultaneously who knows if it's a coincidence started developing all of these other health issues and so that was the first time in my life I had ever seen a psychologist and it was helpful in the breakup aspect but in terms of the health aspect and she was a great psychologist but she didn't have any sort of medical background obviously so she couldn't help me through the health component of what I was going through and she you know, with the medication and the way that I felt about not feeling well and the anxiety and the depression that came with that. So I kind of realized if I ever was going to go see someone else again, I think it would have been really important for me to see a psychiatrist who has a medical background and who can understand this health aspect of what was, you know, such a big part of and still is like a huge part of my life. Yeah, no, I think that's very understandable. And that for some people, it does feel more comfortable seeing somebody who has that medical background. But there's lots of good therapists out there that treat people with chronic pain. And they have lots of experience. They read up about it. They talk to doctors about it. And it's a team approach. So any therapist who's seeing somebody with pain, it's always helpful when the doctor talks to the therapist better, gives them some information on what they have and what's going on, 
Um, and if the therapist is able to do some work on their own and ask questions, mm -hmm. it's really helpful because they could still do a fantastic job of therapy and therapists are amazing at what they do. Um, and then they also get the knowledge from the medical field to better understand the exact illness that the person has. So I, I definitely hear all that. Um, mm -hmm. It all depends on the therapist and the therapist's comfort dealing with people with chronic pain. And I think finding someone that you work well with is also can be a trial and error. Definitely. That's yeah. the most important is to find somebody that you have a good rapport with. I mean, you need to feel very comfortable and open and feel like they're listening and, you know, helpful because there's lots of great therapists and psychiatrists out there. But if you don't feel comfortable with them, then it could be counterproductive. Right. What are your thoughts on women seeing a male therapist versus a female therapist and vice versa? That's all based on the person's comfort yeah. level. There are some women that only want female therapists. There are some that only want male therapists. So it's the most important, again, is to find a good fit. So whatever, it's so individualized, whatever the person feels like is the best fit to go with that. And it works. Uh -huh. Are there any success stories that you think would be interesting to share? Lots of success <laughs> stories. Um, you know, because of HIPAA, there's right. not any specific success stories that I could share or talk about. Um, but I think that with the multidisciplinary approach where you have a big team involved, where there's uh, physiatrists, OBGYNs, acupuncturists, chiropractors, physical therapists, therapists, um, that as a team, people get and do much better. That when it's isolated providers or one person and they're not talking to anybody, it's a lot harder. Um, but I think that having a team approach really makes a big difference. Now, I've seen so many people that come in that have never been on any type of medication before that were you know completely naive to any antidepressants and they do unbelievably well on the first medication. There's some people that take several medications for that to be helpful. And then there's the therapy approach where some people do really nicely in therapy and don't need to stay on medication or aren't interested in medication. So there's all the different types of modalities that could be really helpful. Um, there's, again, so many success stories that most of the people that I'm seeing are getting either completely better or mostly better. So it's a really nice and hopefully optimistic and hopeful point of view for people that if they get in treatment, um, that they can do much better. But it takes a lot of work, that it's just not one pill, it's just not one visit that's going to mm -hmm. make a difference. It's not one line that's, that a psychologist or a therapist or anybody's going to tell you that's going to change your mindset and make everything all better. It's going to take a lot of work. Right. What's the duration of time? And I'm sure this is different, obviously, for everyone, but how long do people generally come and see you for? Like, is it months, years? Depends on the person. Well, yeah, it all depends. Yeah. I mean, I have some people that I've been seeing, you know, for for over five years right. that I see regularly, um, and some people that are just there for medication and have an outside therapist that they're working on. Most people that they're seeing me, they're seeing me for medication. They have an outside therapist, or there's some combination treatment at the beginning, and then they find an outside therapist. Um, but for them, they could do amazingly in a year, then have a symptom relief um, or a symptom remission then stop the medications over the course of a few months. And then at that point, you know, we wait and see how they're doing. If they're doing well, then they call me on an as-needed basis. So I think that to have the expectation that things are going to get better in three months is probably not the approach that's going to lead to the optimal results. But if you're, if someone's seeing a therapist or psychiatrist and they're giving it at least a six to 12 month timeline to start seeing some improvements and to stay with it, um, that's when things really do start getting better. I'd say after you know about six months that's when you're really starting to see improvements but some people are fortunate enough to start seeing it after you know two months so mm -hmm. it all depends 
I think patience is so important and no one wants to be patient, especially with their health. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to feel good, understandably. This is my last question for you, but how do you help patients help? <laughs> how do you help your clients like understand the importance of being patient? I think it's important to look back at one's life and try to see when people have used the immediate gratification impulsive strategies for the quick fix. Mm -hmm. And if that's had short-term or long-term benefits, because most people, the quick fix has the short-term benefits, mm -hmm. and in the long run, it's not really the most beneficial technique. So by understanding that idea, it allows people to realize they've probably been suffering for a long time, that they've been, whether it's gone unnoticed, untreated, um, you know, they took a while to find the right person to, to be in treatment with, that it's a long process. So if they've been dealing with this for one, two, three, five, ten years, giving it six to 12 months, while it sounds like it's, oh my goodness, another six to 12 months, it's gonna be impossible, it's going to be much better than going for what they think is a quick fix and using some kind of opiates or pain medication or techniques that really aren't going to be helpful for them in the long run and then they have more trouble. So just trying to be patient and realize that the, the timeline for the best responses are not going to be the short-term one, two, three months, it's gonna be longer than that. Mm -hmm. And I think also exactly what you said with being able to realize that you've, lived this way feeling not great for however long it's worth you know investing a period of time like look at how long you've lived not feeling your best self mm -hmm. if it takes another six six to twelve months that's going to go by much faster than mm -hmm. it sounds because you've already been living a life that hasn't been as optimal as you would like it to be so it's important to just tell yourself that the time investing the time is not going to be as hard as it might seem. Definitely. And if someone's coming into my office or a therapist's office, things are not going as well as they want them to. Because while it would be nice, nobody's coming right. in saying everything is going amazingly. They just right. want to say hi at the beginning. <laughs> you know, something's bringing them in. Yeah. So there's been some struggles that it's just going to take some time to make sure that we get on the right track to figure out what needs to be done individually to get them to a better place. Mm -hmm. I remember the first doctor that I went to, she was like, because the, the medications also take a while to work. Mm -hmm. So she told me, she's like, this, this, you're not gonna like take one pill, you're not gonna feel better tomorrow. Like mm -hmm. you have to give it three to six months in order for like your brain chemistry to actually adapt to this medication. Mm -hmm. I was so upset and I was like, there, there's no way I'm waiting three months for this mm -hmm. medication to work. But then three months goes by so fast mm -hmm. and then you start feeling better. Yeah. And then the whole, it like all gets put into perspective. And it's a process that even though the medications might take eight to 12 weeks to take their full effect, that at the beginning, when you start on that path, you're doing something for yourself that you know is in your best interest. Mm -hmm. And that starts the ball rolling even faster. So most of the time, it doesn't even take the full 12 weeks for it to take full effect that you see things before that. So it's a step in the right direction. Right. Are there any resources that you want to recommend? Sure. I mean, I think for, for CBT, um, the cognitive behavioral therapy, there's a fantastic workbook called Mind Over Mood. Mm -hmm. It's just a really good way of learning about CBT, how to work on the thoughts and the thought records, and you could do that on your own. Um, then there's great apps for meditation, which I think is so important, like Headspace and Calm. Those are two really good ones that people can use on their own and teach meditation. Um, there's another app called Relax and Rest, mm. and I use it at night, and it puts you to sleep in like five minutes That's sleeping. great to know. That's yeah, like it's a really good one. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, and then just the, the societies and the foundations for whatever mm -hmm. illness um, someone's suffering from. So whether it's endometriosis or IC, they've got some really great resources as well. 
Um, and the last one, uh, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI, they have really good resources for anxiety, depression, for groups, uh, group treatments that are for family members or for themselves. So it's a great resource to have as well. And I'm going to put all of the links in the show notes so that it's easily accessible to everyone listening. Okay. And if anyone wants to contact you, where yeah. can they do so? I mean, you can see my profile on Psychology Today. Uh, my email address is just first and last name MD, so SethBurgerMD at gmail.com. You can email me that way. Cool. Um, yeah, no, this is, Thanks this for is being great. Here. No, I've really enjoyed this. I Amazing. hope that people can get some benefit and at least uh, knowledge and understanding of what's going on and that they can instill some hope that there's a lot of outlets and different opportunities out there to have resources and to feel better. 